You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Dunn and I, Niels Kastel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Jerry Parker, where we discussed the pros and the cons using different styles of trend-following and also how much risk he takes per market within his 200 market portfolio. I also would like to encourage you to listen to the Midweek Global Macro Series episode that I launched with Jem this week. So the first episode was with Dr. Ben Hunt as our guest, and that was a fascinating conversation. Even though the topic of narrative is perhaps not so uh, well understood, I do think it's a very important topic to um, get familiar with. And of course, uh, I do encourage you also to um, to tune in uh, next week on Wednesday, where we will be hosting one of the world's leading geopolitical experts, Peter Zion. So that will be a not-to-be-missed episode, so to speak. Alan, it is wonderful to be back with you this week. Um how are things where you are today? I see you're in new surroundings. It's very sunny where you are. It is indeed beautiful sunny morning in Dublin. Thanks very much. Yeah, we we moved house recently, so that's why you're seeing me in a in a new setting. So lots of boxes uh, around me as well. But but outside of that, everything is great. Good to speak to you again. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as as we were talking about just before we press record, uh, your new surroundings, you, you do sound a little bit different today. So uh, so people will uh, probably get used to the, the we, new we, sound of new Alan. acoustics, yes, exactly. On, uh, until the bookshelves come back up again, I guess. <laughs> Anyways, um, this week, of course, all eyes were yet again focused on the prospects of higher Fed funds rate and how big the steps are going to be and how many of them they're going to get in the next few months. There seems to be more and more support from within the Fed that 50 basis points hikes will be the order of the day and to quickly try and get the Fed funds up to about 2.5% or so. Fed funds futures have picked uh, have priced sorry, uh, in four 50 basis points hikes between now and September, which begs the question why the Fed is dragging their feet a bit in normalizing interest rates. Uh, one guess would be that the committee has enjoyed uh, having its cake and eating it too when it comes to the stock market, but that may be coming to an end uh, given the price action of the S&P 500 over the last couple of days, which I believe has now officially reached correction territory, while the Nasdaq is probably in a bear market or what they call a bear market by now, with uh, some of the fang darlings, of course, down significantly since their all-time highs. Over here in Europe, we seem to be taking a different approach to all the alarm bells ringing, with Madame Lagarde this week saying that the ECB will need to wait for the data to dictate what the central bank will be doing with its policy. Just as a reminder, the ECB overnight borrowing rate is still negative 50 basis points, despite year-over-year year year inflation of 7.5%. Not sure what data she is waiting for. Anyways, it is worth pointing out. 
uh, the way corporate bonds and the S&P 500 has been moving in tandem so far this year. Nothing that we haven't mentioned uh, before because we've actually highlighted this as a major risk to lots of portfolios around the globe. Positive correlation between stocks and fixed incomes tends to happen when inflation rises above a certain level, leaving those portfolios incredibly vulnerable, unless, of course, they have some truly uncorrelated investments in the mix. Not sure, Alan, if you can think of one of those uncorrelated investments, Mm -hmm. but I would like to hear what you've been focusing on the last few weeks since uh, we last spoke. I'm sure we will touch on some ideas around that as we go through the hour. Yeah, I know. But, um, no, very much the same as yourself, Niels, in terms of focused on um, just the weakness in the equity market that we saw really just yesterday. Um, you know, we've had this run up in bond yields uh, for a number of weeks now with the US 10-year yield getting up close to the uh, 3% level. But for, you know, for a number of weeks there, the equity market seemed to have held in reasonably well, even in the face of the... Um, geopolitical tensions and the war in in Ukraine, um, so it had been surprising uh, that equities had held up so so well. And uh, you know, I had been reading some people suggesting, you know, that that people had been transitioning into equities as a as a hedge against bonds, which was was a new new concept for for, for me. But but all that aside, it does seem to be we're at the point now where uh, whether it was the ramp up in um, kind of rhetoric again this week, you know, 50 basis points you've seen baked in for the next couple of meetings and talk now of even the risk of 75, which is absolutely phenomenal relative to to the pattern that we've seen for the last number of years. So looks certainly looks um, very, um, you know, uh, tricky kind of uh, outlook for equities in the short term from uh, looking at the charts. And as you say, a lot of the uh, high high growth um, kind of fang stocks technically start to look in looking very weak. Obviously, we had the big move in, in Netflix, but but even the likes of Alphabet and um, Apple, Microsoft, they, they're all starting to look much more weaker technically. So, so certainly, I think, uh, interesting that that, that, that this uh, relentless rise in yields is now starting to impact uh, risk assets just uh, in the last few days. So I think that's very interesting. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And another thing that uh, came sort of uh, on my radar this week was just the fact, speaking of things that have changed a lot, um, I think it was last summer where when you search for how many trillions of dollars of debt was yielding Mm. negative yields, I think we got to like 17 or 18 trillion dollars worldwide. I think it's down now to 2 trillion. Right. I mean, so this this, uh, rise in interest rates over the last eight, nine months or so, it has really made a change uh, in the structure of many things. And and as you rightly say, um, you know, what's the spillover effect going to be? And of course, we suspect that you're going to see this show up in, in many parts of the economy, whether it's going to be housing or, 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 or other things. Um, so when, of course, on top of that, we still have massive conflict and disturbances to supply chains, which can put, uh, you know, even more pressure on inflation and and therefore yields. In terms of trend following for the week, I would say uh, I'm pretty sure in saying that trend followers had another positive week uh, overall, mainly driven by the the exact thing, namely the continuation of yields moving higher. But also now, something we will touch on a little bit later, the uh, currency market starting to produce some interesting uh, opportunities and the dollar at the moment displaying some further strength. And that seems to have helped, um, I think, in the trend-following world. Um, in terms of single markets, um, actually, I would imagine that some of the moves we saw in the currency sector, like the yen and also the British pound, by the way, 
um, was meaningful for trend followers. Um, and it is kind of nice to see a different leadership uh, when it comes to attributions uh, away from just being energies, which has been quite dominant uh, so far this year. Um, in terms of overall sector attribution, I imagine fixed income probably was the biggest contributor for the week. Stocks probably flat, uh, even though we did, as you say, s- had some sell-off and pressure um, in the last couple of days. Um, and then commodities, um, yeah, probably one of the few weeks we've had this year where commodities overall were a little bit of a detractor in terms of performance for trend followers. There were a few exceptions when you look at the markets. Uh, I noticed that soybean oil and corn still did pretty well, but uh, but there we are. Uh, from my point of view, the trend barometer finished uh, the week at, at a reading of 55. So it's still a positive territory, still suggesting that trend followers are making money. Obviously, we have another week of trading to do before April comes to an end. Um, but I think so far it looks like it's um, it's going okay in uh, in that area. Now we have a number of topics, Alan, um, that you brought with you, so to speak. Some of them I actually have no idea where you're going to go with that. Um, so I do. I hope you do, um, which we'll see. But why don't we just kick it off? And as usual, we'll we'll see how we go with that. And we're actually going to start with, with with just what I mentioned before, kind of the the currency markets. I mean, maybe for framing the conversation, what I can say from a trend-following perspective, at least, is that currencies have probably been the worst sector for many trend for most trend followers in the last fifteen years or so. Perhaps as a uh, response to um, the strong quote-unquote carry regime we've had, where central banks have kept everything pretty much in check and growth has been pretty well synchronized between the major countries in the world. And with that coming to uh, an end, at least in my mind, and probably something that started a year ago or so, we are seeing some interesting opportunities as mentioned in the uh, currency market. So de-dollarization, Bretton Woods 3, some those are some of the terms being thrown out. Tell me what's on your mind. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we touched on this the last time I was on. You know, we were saying interesting to see um, currencies starting to, to look much more interesting. Um, and that, that was back when, <clears throat> I don't know, when, when I was on, a, it must have been a four, six weeks ago, dollar yen was, was around 119. It's now jumped up to just under 130, which is, you know, a very big move in, in a historical context. Um, so, so, so that was one thing. And then Secondly, you know, we, we I, I guess in this period as well, we, we've had this uh, emergence of the speculation around a new uh, Bretton Woods, uh, uh, you know, arrangement, a uh, Bretton Woods three idea, which is uh, really a very interesting idea. It's been put forward by um, this uh, Credit Suisse strategist, uh, Zoltan Pozar, and he's kind of outlined his hypothesis about how the Bretton Woods uh, uh, system is moving into a kind of a new a new era which, which I thought was a very interesting idea and and basically if you think about kind of the the, the historical um evolution we obviously we had Bretton Woods after the the second world war from from 1945 to 
1973 when when the dollar uh, was then taken off the the gold standards and the Bretton Woods system basically disintegrated. And then you had a transition period of volatility in markets. And then we entered what, what's kind of been called Bretton Woods II, which is, you know, coincided with a period of stability in the global trade system as well. Obviously, we had globalization. We had China coming into the world trade system. We had, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and a golden era for probably neoliberalism. So this, uh, you had two things happening at the one time. You had the, the, the dollar then kind of coming back as the anchor. Why? Because you've had this global trade system where, you know, emerging economies came into the system and they tended to recycle their surpluses into, into dollars. So this was the idea of, of Bretton Woods too, that even though uh, formerly the dollar wasn't the anchor, you know, it was effectively playing that 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 role because emerging economies had this, they had the global savings glut as, as Bernanke called it. But just want just to add to that, but I do think the reason why it became it was it became de facto backed by oil. So the link which all the countries need. So yes. that's kind of helped it along to, that's right. to that role. Yeah. Uh, and, and and I suppose this was the, the other part of it is that um access to commodities was easy and and everything operated very um, very efficiently why because the oil producers were, were happy to recycle uh, their surpluses into dollars and, uh, and and everybody was happy to trade together but if you look at that system versus you know what's happened in the last number of, of years and how we may be transitioning into a new system you know first of all we had started to have the trade war between the US and China um, and and that kind of uh, put large corporates on notice that maybe they needed to reassess their supply chains and that obviously got accentuated uh, by, by, by COVID and everybody's now thinking in terms of robustness of supply chains as opposed to supply chain uh, efficiency and now obviously we've had the war in, in Ukraine and we've had, um, I suppose, what we're call, calling the, 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 the weaponization of, of the dollar and the fact that, um, well, for, for, for one, um, you know, these, these uh, commodity producers such as, uh, such as Russia may not want to hold, hold dollars. So that's one side of it. And then on the flip side of it, c- commodity consumers may not want to, to, to deal with, you know, so-called kind of rogue nations like Russia. So effectively, we're seeing this breakdown both on, on the trade side and on the monetary side, which, which uh, as the, the Sultan Pozar's view is, you know, this is potentially very negative for, for, for the dollar. And it possibly is heralding a new era where, you know, commodities are at the centre of the system, and access to commodities is really important. Uh, and and the financing of of commodity trading is going to be critical as well. Um, the upshot of all of that is seems to be dollar negative. What's interesting, I suppose, when you look at the markets at the moment, is we're seeing a strong rally in the dollar. So, so what's going on? And um, I think you know it's it's possibly a cyclical thing versus a longer term structural um, you know uh, trend that 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 are kind of meeting head on because the cyclicalities are certainly very very positive for the dollar at the moment. And it's interesting, you know, there are certainly historical parallels you know i touched on when i was on the last time about how the dollar yen move has reminded me of that big run-up we saw in in the 1990s where where um, you had a strong dollar. You had a similar scenario, kind of a relative interest rate differential, um, and a big carry trade, as you as you say, and ultimately it took the dollar up to one to one forty seven. And it seems at the moment that that's the big dynamic. The expectation of of rate rises in the U.S. Obviously, the Bank of Japan have been intervening to cap yields in Japan, and they're obviously steadfast in in maintaining monetary stimulus. So we've got this very clear and, and notable divergence in 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 policy. For, for you know, for the first time in in a number of years, and that's propelling the dollar higher. 
And there's probably, a, you know, a, a parallel if you go back to maybe the 1980s. You know, everybody's talking about how we need to see the, the Fed stepping up to be Volcker-esque in their response to this inflation. And obviously, one of the upshots of the Volcker tightening that we saw in the early 80s was a very strong dollar. So it was a period of, of you know, lax fiscal policy and tight monetary policy, which propelled the dollar really um, to multi-year highs in, in the early 80s. And you had this sustained run-up in the dollar until until the Plaza Accord, I think in 1985, was it reached. Uh, that was a G7 agreement to kind of cap the dollar. So I suppose where I'm going with all of this is that, you know, having had a period of real boring kind of movement in currency markets uh, and, and, and a lot of stability, now we're, we're back into a scenario where people are wondering, you know, how, how high can dollar yen go? Will we see the Bank of Japan coming in to intervene? You know, we haven't heard that for, 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 for a long time, certainly. I think the last time they came in to sell dollar yen was probably, you know, back in 1998, you know, around 148. They have been had to um, sell yen by dollars at times. But but certainly the, the fact that that's on the agenda, um, that, you know, the, the, the magnitude of the moves that we're seeing in currencies. And you could easily see a scenario where you get a big run up in, in, in dollar yen and then the yen becomes very cheap because actually... With low inflation in Japan on a PPP basis, it's actually getting cheaper versus versus the dollar. So you could have a huge move up, and then the fundamentals may reassert and, and then and the big move back down. So I just think um, you know, as we've been talking about, um, currencies have been uninteresting from a trend following perspective, but we're starting to see it becoming much more interesting. Uh, and obviously, the, the the other element that that, that we didn't mention was that we've seen a a breakout now in the, in the dollar versus the uh, Chinese renminbi, which had again been the, the, really the strongest uh, currencies probably across the, the the landscape in the last while. So um, it's very interesting how you've got this cyclical versus structural forces at play here. On the one hand, this this kind of ongoing uh, discussion: Are we going to move away from the dollar-based system? Is the dollar at risk? But at the same time, on a cyclical basis, uh, the the strength of the U.S. economy and the prospect of much higher rates uh, providing fuel for for a very strong dollar rally at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I've heard the call on on in many different places of this. You know, the dollar is going to collapse, and people have been saying that for a while, and and so on and so forth. But I still struggle with. Yeah, but what's going to replace it? Yeah. Right. And then they say, oh, Bitcoin is going to replace it. Well, that doesn't seem to like that's going to happen anytime soon. And then they talk about, you know, central bank digital currencies and, and so on, which we haven't still really seen yeah. in any meaningful way and certainly not in the West and all of that stuff. So, I mean, it's a little bit like when people say trend following is dead. Uh, I always get a little bit skeptical when there's too many people saying, well, the dollar is dead. And and you can certainly also find people, um, experts, I would imagine, uh, and one of them being the next guest on the Global Macro Series, Peter Zion, who really strongly believes that the U.S. is is in so much better position from so many different angles um, compared to China, compared to Russia, not least demographics, um, and also the fact that uh, both uh, the U.S. itself can supply themselves with both food and energy, um, something that Russia, um, well, they can, I guess, in terms of energy and probably food, um, but they need a few other things, and uh, China, uh, they need everything. So... So I'm I'm kind of open minded. I yeah. guess I'm more open minded about calling the dollar no, dead I'm, um, I mean, too I, soon. I'm the same, and it's been a, it's as you say, it's been a topic, um, you know, t- throughout our careers. I would say that the dollar right. is doomed. You know, and um, you know, obviously, when we had the euro, people hurled that the euro is going to be an alternative, and that 
you know, proved not to be the case. I mean, I think I think the share of euros in kind of global reserves went up for a few years and then trickled down again. Um, and th- there is this um, challenge that, you know, does China actually want to play the role of the global reserve um, currency? Because, you know, to do that, you have to supply uh, renminbi to the world so people can can accumulate it. Uh, but to do that, then then you need to run a deficit, which is the US has been happy to do that. Uh, but but China generally doesn't like it. You know, hasn't they haven't fully liberalised their, their their capital account? So yeah, it it does seem to be a case of of there is no alternative. Um, let's see. You know, central bank digital currencies could be could 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 change the landscape, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I mean, again, just hearing you talk, there's so many things that kind of pops to mind. One is the thing about China, right? Where, as far as I understand, and this is also something that I actually think is quite interesting when you think about all the companies that we know in the West, and a lot of investors have been very happy to uh, pay uh, pay up in terms of price. Um, you know, as far as I can tell, uh, these companies can't get their money out of China. Um, and there's only one country in the world that is where you're allowed to get money out of China, and that's Taiwan, because it's one way for the Chinese to maybe kind of slowly um, getting them more included in the club, let's call it that. Um, so I'm, I'm really confused about some of these things, and I'm confused that people don't um, question mark, uh, you know, some of this where... where companies or change have huge amounts of investments and profits um, piling up in China, but they can't get them out. Um, that's one thing. Well, anyway, can't remember my other comments <laughs> to what you said. But but, uh, but certainly, it's, I mean, it's, it, as you say... Oh, yeah, I know what. I know what. So, go, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to, sorry to interrupt you, because I, I'm getting to an age where I'll forget <laughs> if I don't just uh, shout it out. I would be more concerned about the euro actually holding together through what is to come, if you believe some of these uh, people about um, deglobalization and conflict and all of that, um, because at some point you would think that even in within Europe, uh, at some point when it comes down to will we have um, power in our light switch or will we have heat in our houses, uh, some policies will become much more focused on how can we save our situation rather than how can we save Europe's situation. So I would be more concerned about the euro um, holding together um, than the dollar yeah. breaking down. No, I, I think you're um, right. Now. And I think that's why we're seeing that weakness in the euro that, you know, the question is, is the European industrial model, you know, under threat if, if uh, the likes of Germany don't have access to, to cheap energy? You know, that's, has that, that's been the, the base of it. And, you know, Countries have operated on on on, a, on the basis of a globalized free trading world. If you take out key suppliers out of that that chain, um, it will obviously there'll be winners and losers, and some of the losers will be impacted more than others. And as you say, energy dependence um, in in Europe or in, certainly in Germany is is higher than in the US. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing that um, that that downtrend in the euro that's been pretty much. Um, underway for a number of months now, but has certainly accelerated since we've had the, the conflict in Ukraine. True. Although it has been incredibly slow, I have to say. I really think it's a struggle getting that euro down, yeah. uh, even with everything that's going on. But we'll see. I mean, sometimes these things has a way to just be very slow until people accept um, that there is an issue and then suddenly the floodgates open, a little bit like what we saw with the yen. Suddenly everything just went. Um, so, um, so yeah, I'm... Um, 
I'm optimistic in the sense I think there's going to be lots of uh, of um, movement um, yeah. in in many of these. I, I, think, uh, I think the sectors. other thing that's interesting yeah. is you know if you went back, went back maybe ten years in in our industry, you would have seen a lot more currency traders. You know, system both right. systematic and discretionary, sure. and and people have um, have just been it's just been such a difficult space to operate in that a lot of those have been you know, uh, wiped out, basically. It's just uh, the opportunities weren't there in G G7 uh, currencies in particular. But uh, certainly, you know, from a macro perspective and what we're seeing in terms of volatility levels, uh, much more interesting now, I would say, uh, looking ahead. Now, of course, you also mentioned earlier this thing about people moving into equities as kind of a hedge against inflation, like a, maybe a hedge against their bond portfolio. Um, and we often hear this uh, term, you know, Tina, there is no alternative. But of course, both you and I know, and probably everyone who's listening to us today, know there is alternatives. There is certainly one alternative that we've been talking about for the last eight years on this podcast. Um, so I um, I wanted to uh, see if you could talk a little bit about the um, performance that we've seen in, in, in trend following. Uh, obviously, you wrote a great paper a few years back um, that we've talked about um, uh, a few months ago. But from a historical perspective, and, and, you know, maybe put the current performance in some kind of context in terms of you know what it's what it looks like, and and just to maybe attack the topic from a slightly different angle than what we normally do. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's it's you know for people like yourselves who monitor the performance of uh, managed futures trend following performance on on a pretty much daily basis, it really has been one of those periods where. Um, you know, you, you you know these periods will come along, and then you're still surprised somewhat when you see them. In the sen in sense that, what's really taken me has been the consistency of the performance that we've seen. I you know, very very often with trend following, you, you you obviously get strong trends, but then you're waiting for the inevitable correction in markets and and a bit of a give back. But it really has felt like one of those periods where we've had consistently strong. I mean, looking at and uh, performance, looking at the numbers, the Sock Chain Trend Index, which is an index of large trend followers. Up twenty five percent year to date. The the Sockchain CTA index up eighteen and three quarter percent year to date. And I think um, you know why has it felt so consistent? Uh, one of the things that you see when you get into a better market environment for trend following is what you tend to see is a, a rotation of trends. And it's a bit like what we talked about before. You get a, a shift in the market dynamic and a move in one market and then kind of ripple effects into, into other markets. So, you know, we've been seeing, you know, um, probably last year more commodities than into the early part of this year. It was more the short rates and the big volatility expansion that we've seen in, in, in the short rates. Then back into commodities again, then more into long rates and into bonds. And then more recently, it's been, yeah, bonds and uh, currencies in the yen again. So very often what you're seeing is, yes, maybe individual markets are having a move and a correction, but then other markets are coming in uh, to make up for the fact that you might be seeing a correction in one market to give overall a, a very consistent um, uh, return profile. So, I mean, looking at the numbers relative to, to the past, it is certainly a strong period of performance. You know, I was actually looking looking at the numbers to see it. Has that consistency been unusual versus the past? And I, I just looked at the uh, the daily data on the um, 
on on the SOCCHEN trend index. And 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 this year there's been about 66% of the days have been positive, which is which is high. Uh, well, the long term average for, for the SOCCHEN trend index is 53%. So certainly went to a period okay. where you know it's it's definitely been more consistent, but not unusually so. So it's kind of like it's felt probably even. You know, it's felt unusually good, but we have had periods like this before. You know, certainly back in 2014, 2015, uh, we had a period that's kind of very similar to the current period with, you know, trends in, in energy markets, currency markets and in bond markets in, in that period. So 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 interesting. We're, we're seeing a kind of a similar period now. Um, we're, we're, we're seeing what, what, what's interesting is we're seeing a low number of, of, of kind of losses, of, of significant losses. So I was just looking at what, what's the number of one standard deviation losses. So one standard deviation on the SOCGEN trend, I think it's about 83 basis points. And there's been six days of those or less or, or those are worse basically this year. So again, not, not unusually low, but definitely on the low side. So, and I think that's to my point that when you get losses maybe in one market, they're being compensated by, by, by gains in the, in the other markets. And then again, have we seen have we seen like a number of very big days? Yeah, we've had you know we've had twenty one days where we where the index has been up more than one standard deviation. Again, high but not unusual. So you know when I say when I look at the overall picture. Yes, it's a very strong period of performance. We have had stronger periods of performance in the index back in the kind of 2000 to 2003 period, but the index itself was much more volatile back then. So I'm not sure. It might have been that there was fewer constituents or else that the constituents themselves were, were, were higher volatility managers. So you have to adjust for that. And looking at it on a kind of a rolling sharp basis, the current period is similar to kind of the 2014-2015 period. So so I would say, you know, so what, what do we take from all of that yes it's been a, you know a very strong period certainly an above average period for trend following but not so something that's been exceptional relative to the past not something you would say oh this is this is uh, really off the charts but but it certainly ranks as, as a really strong period of performance and a very consistent period of performance yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Um, and uh, and thanks for doing that uh, work in terms of digging out some of those statistics. It's not statistics that I follow um, that closely on, on kind of daily performance numbers, but it's interesting because just from, as you say, I look at these numbers every single day and, and I had noticed exactly the same, that down days were generally smaller. And, um, and, and, and to me, that indicates that there's a lot of breadth in the portfolio and therefore in a sense there's a lot of divergence going on in the markets uh, as you rightly said even if there was a sector having a rough day like yesterday with equities clearly a rough day but it was compensated to a large extent by many other things so the net net for for yesterday i imagine will be relatively small uh, down day um so so it is interesting uh, of course um so yeah we'll see how long it lasts i mean as you said it's not uh, it, we're, we're not by any stretch of the imagine at a point where it's unusually uh, long i mean we've had what uh, december through april um let's call it that that's five months in a row with positive performance that's not you know uh, extreme um, we can certainly go for a few more months if if it was, but but this is the other thing. And even though I talked with Jerry last week about what what he's aiming for, his dream of creating trend following performance that is consistently profitable on a twelve months basis, uh, which I don't know whether you know. Of course, we're going to get up there in terms of percentages um, uh, for sure, 
but we're probably not going to get to a 100% uh, rolling 12-month period that's going to be profitable. That would be unlikely for a trend-following strategy. Maybe 24 months, certainly 36 months gets more realistic. But of course, deep down, it is a desire for most investors to have some kind of consistency in that. The best way, to some extent, of course, is to blend trend following with something else to achieve even higher consistency. Um, but I think, to your point, that and, and to Jerry's uh, wish, so to speak, I do think generally trend following is doing a pretty good job at delivering consistency when you define consistency as something like rolling 24 months or rolling whatever, 36 months, people have to get away from consistency expecting monthly positive returns all the time. That's something we will never be able to do. But once you zoom out a little bit, it does become very consistent. And I wish more people could see that uh, and not focus so much on the monthly or daily uh, up and down moves, which you know, it's just noise in the in the big picture, really. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the other exceptional thing that we are seeing at the moment is obviously that that, that this strong period of performance has, has occurred in a period of rising bond yields, which is obviously something that we yeah. talked about before, that there was this perception that, that that wouldn't and couldn't happen. That couldn't happen. You know, no way that could happen, right? Yeah, so, so again, it just highlights what a ridiculous notion that was, because obviously we what we've seen is, is big dislocations across many markets. And I think... Um, the the other point is that when you get an environment where, you know, um, you know, you have a number of different uh, themes and narratives in the market. It's not just one story, but you've got, you know, commodities being influenced by individual, um, you know, uh, market specific factors, and then you know divergences impacting currencies, and then big big macro themes influencing markets as well. That the more unique. Um, themes um, and, and and narratives in the markets that creates more distinct trends and lower correlations basically across markets, which again provides more opportunity to, to deliver um, more consistent returns. So I think that's another part of what we're seeing in terms of trend following performance at the moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, the next topic you brought along kind of took me a little bit surprised um, because there's a few things here that I didn't expect on today's uh, list of topics. Insights from Alfred Winslow Jones as feature in More Money Than God. So uh, let's dive into that one. That sounds fun. Yeah, well, as you said, I was moving house recently, so that meant unpacking all of all of the books and and the old books uh, and yeah. moving them all. And and one of them I came across was um, the book More Money Than God by Sebastian Malaby, uh, which I'd forgotten I had. And you know, once you once you start unpacking unpacking boxes, you, you immediately pick up the first thing you see and start reading it or looking and. Oh, I forgot I had that book. Um, but it, you know it, what was interesting is uh, well, Sebastian Malaby, he's a great author. He he wrote a book on Greenspan as well, which I definitely recommend. It's one of my one of the best books I've read on kind of regardless of what you think of Alan Greenspan, it's a, it's a great uh, uh, perspective on the economic and monetary uh, developments over the last fifty years. But he's a, he's an author who kind of goes away and takes on big projects and spends two or three years. Uh, researching and then writes them up. So he did one on Greenspan, as I said, he's done one recently on uh, venture capital. And he had done this one going back a number of years called More Money Than God on the hedge fund industry and, and big players, the big kind of names in the hedge fund industry. 
Um, so the first chapter is is about Alfred Winslow Jones, who is kind of the first person you know credited with running a running a hedge fund. Uh, he, he called it a hedged fund back back. This is back in in the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties. But a couple of things when I read the chapter again, I, you know, resonated with me, particularly in the context of the conversations we've been having on the Allocator series. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the things was so he he basically ran a, a long short portfolio, a long short equity portfolio. Um, so he'd be long some stocks, short some stocks, and he'd probably have a, a, a net long overall. So very typical of, of a long short equity strategy. But one of the things that was quite innovative uh, at the time for him was that he, he obviously he had the insight that there was no point in say, you know, having you know, high high beta stocks as shorts and low beta stocks or, or low volatile stocks as longs. So you're going to have a disproportionate impact from your longs or shorts. So he talked about the the velocity of the stocks, which was basically his uh, name for for volatility. And his insights was his insight was you had to measure the the velocity of the stocks to understand their market impact. And um, so it was very very much. Um, you know, a very good insight for 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 the era, and and he kind of um, sized his support. It's basically what he was doing is he was volatility sizing his portfolio, which um, obviously is something that people in the CTA industry do now. But 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 even still, it's something that it's a concept that maybe hasn't fully permeated the the, the rest of the industry. I would say, um, and the second thing was that you know he kind of had the observation that. You know, th- there might have been a perception in in the industry that you you didn't want to hold really volatile stocks because they were too risky, but he had the insight. Well, that's not right. You you still uh, want to hold certain some of these stocks, but it's just about about the sizing. So it's it's um, the, the Sebastian Malaby goes on to say, well, this was actually ahead of um, James Tobin's separation theorem, which is the same thing, uh, and it's the idea that you 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 know it, the the right way to run a portfolio is to basically figure out what's the right optimal mix of assets based on their returns and characteristics and then the second question is how much risk you want to hold in the portfolio so you know a good mix might be as we're saying you know equities plus trend plus other assets and strategies and some people might want to have that at a you know 20 vol portfolio but for for somebody with less risk it would still make sense to be invested in all of those strategies but still have the portfolio run at a lower level of volatility um so what really struck me about this was you know this is the way he was running his portfolio back in the 1950s 1960s but that concept is still quite alien to to a lot of people in the investment industry there's still this perception that you know if you say if you go to a typical wealth manager you'll say we've got three kind of typical templates the low risk the medium risk and the high risk and basically low risk means lower lower equities medium risk more equities and higher risk more equities so the the lever for increasing risk seems to be purely on that risk factor as opposed to saying let's run diversified portfolios and figure out what are the best assets and strategies to have in the portfolio. And then the second question is how much risk to have or how levered those portfolios should be. So I'm kind of curious why that concept still hasn't taken taken hold. Um, where all of that fits in, I think why it all resonated particularly uh, with me at the moment is we've been doing the Allocator series and uh, one one of the guests or one of the sets of guests we had on was Fairfax County, uh, Catherine Mulnar and Andy Speller are the CIOs there. And uh, their approach to running a, you know, big and uh, a big uh, public pension plan is very much that idea of, um, of, of, 
having multiple uh, risk factors in the portfolio, uh, holding uncorrelated uh, strategies and and holding them in in size. Um, They also recognize that you know, high vol can be a good thing because high vol means a bigger impact on your overall portfolio. In fact, they preferred that. They prefer actually. that, exactly. Yeah. So so there's the concept, you know, historically, um, you know, you, you might say, well, you're a buyer of volatility. And if you say that to somebody, they say, oh, why, why do you want to buy volatility? But it's, it's basically you're, you're buying more risk so it can have, you know, um, more impact on, on your portfolio. So I thought that was interesting how they were, you know, the, the conversation I had with, with Catherine and Andy very much resonated when I read this again. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. But it's still an out of consensus type of approach to to size portfolios and size exposures based on on, on, on volatility and, and risk contribution. Um, and also to to be willing to, to go into higher vol strategies and also have the conviction to hold things that are truly uncorrelated because you know that's going to give you a more robust portfolio of, over over time. Um, and then you determine, well, how much risk that, 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 that we hold in the portfolio. So so I think um, lots of insights there, but but a question as to, well, why is that still a, um, a relatively... Um, non you know it's a non-mainstream of running a portfolio sure but i think that i mean i think it leads to also other questions such as um you know um, most investors i think it's safe to say would would certainly perceive fixed income as safer than equities right and if you if you look and this is just another issue that i can see coming uh over here in europe um, if you see some of the uh, European uh, countries and you look at the pension system, well, some of them have, instead of a 60-40 portfolio, they've had an 80-20, but the 80 is the fixed income. Yes. You know, and you, you just mentioned this thing about, well, you can have three choices, a safe portfolio, which is mostly fixed income, and, and, and the risky portfolio, which is more balanced between equities and fixed income. But you think about that in today's world, where you know long-term U.S. Treasuries are down thirty-five, forty percent in price in the last eight, nine months. Um, European fixed income, at some point, I mean, of course, it's already started, but it's not to that degree. Uh, will come under tremendous pressure, I, I imagine. So I think we have to, and and we've actually talked about this. Um, I can't remember if it was you and I, but but certainly uh, on on the systematic investor series, we've talked about this thing about maybe we need to redefine what we mean by safe assets, and also going back to to the topic that I bring up from time to time, and that is, I think we've lost our imagination as to what markets can do. Uh, And I think we're going to be reminded of that. We've already been reminded of it if we look at oil in the last two years from minus $37 to $130 in in 18, 24 months. I mean, that in itself is unimaginable uh, by most standards, but it can happen. And I think we're going to see more of that. And and this is, of course, why, you know, certainly from my point of view, that I have this incredible love and respect for for trend following um, because the fact that we can adapt to these uh, unusual uh, behaviors without getting emotionally involved uh, by just following rules. Uh, of course, the rules have to be solid. But I think we, we, I don't think we get as an industry enough credit for time and time again going through these never happened before type periods and still delivering uh, either very attractive returns or 
relatively small drawdowns. Uh, I mean, we, we talked briefly earlier today about the FANG stocks. I mean, as if they were less risky than than what we do. No, not at all. I mean, Netflix is down, what, 60 70% from its high. Facebook or, or Meta, as it's called now, it's probably the same. I mean, these are extraordinary losses uh, by any means of the imagination. And... Um, and you never see that in the trend-following world. I mean, yeah, sure, we can have a 20% drawdown or 30% drawdown, but they're relatively short-lived. And uh, and over the long term, uh, the performance has, for, for decades, been positive, uh, usually double-digit for something that had similar volatility to single stocks, right? So... I think we I, th- I think there's going to be a major shift. I mean I really think we're in a time where we have to shift our the way we think about many things yeah. uh in life. But it is interesting how that 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 kind of way of running portfolios it's still very much embedded, you know, and you, right. yeah, and even like you know from a managed futures perspective it's that that has always been the philosophy vol you know vault sizing, you know, looking at each of the markets, risk adjusting, holding lots of different markets um you know even if they are maybe out of favor you know currencies haven't trended for a long time but people still trade them because they know at some point you'll 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 get the diversification and you'll get the opportunity so um that mindset of diversification risk sizing holding on uncorrelated strategies has always been or uncorrelated markets it's always been very much part of the 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 ethos and philosophy of of managed futures and trend following but but again it's just surprising how that is still um, and using you know deciding what's the optimal portfolio that you want to have and then as a second question deciding how much risk you want to have as opposed to just assuming you know more risk means more equities and so yeah i I, i'm not sure why why those ideas have been maybe a bit slower to 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 take hold in some quarters but but certainly i think you know maybe we're at that at that point where, where, where people will will reassess some of these portfolio construction techniques yeah, I think it would be interesting to um, see whether in your conversations going forward, because you you speak more with the allocators than than than, than I do to some extent. Um, from a bigger portfolio allocation point of view, I focus obviously more when people get interested in in the trend following side uh, of a portfolio. So it'll be interesting to see whether you pick up uh, a shift in in that mindset. Um, of course. Um, I do think change is difficult, mm. and I do think that when you've kind of been brought up in 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 one environment and you've been um, reading the same books and uh, and it's worked, frankly, I mean the sixty forty portfolio has been a fantastic success in the last twenty years. So why would you change, yeah. right? So there has to be some kind of aha moment that that kind of pops up um, for people to make that to take that leap. Incredibly interesting conversation with Catherine and, and Andrew um, in, regarding their approach in, in Fairfax. Um, and, and of course, there are a few more of those. Um, hopefully, we can find them and, <laughs> yeah, sure and, will, and yeah. speak yeah. to them because I do think it's for, for other pension funds and, and similar investors to change their mind. I think they have to listen to or read uh, documentation from some of their peers to feel it's okay, right? Mm. It's kind of, they need some kind of a seal of approval to say, yeah, if they can do it over here, it's it's going to be fine. You and I have talked about Calsters a few times, yes. their risk mitigation bucket that came up 
maybe what i don't know five six years ago they started doing it where of course trend following is a major part of of that uh, risk mitigation when i interviewed um, carrie lowe uh, the cio of calsters um she i think she said that 35 percent of that risk mitigation bucket was trend following mm. of course and then i think they actually had 40 percent in uh, at the time in long dated treasuries well that may have to shift as well, right? I mean, given what we've seen now and, and the direction of interest rates, so even that has to be maybe redefined. Uh, so not only do people have have to have more risk mitigation as a theme in their portfolio, but frankly, maybe they have to simply accept that an adaptive strategy, um, a long-short strategy, a diversified long-short strategy is a better solution when it comes to risk mitigation, mm. back to the point you we talked about, you know, true cor- true low correlation or non correlation is hard to find, but there are a few places you can find it. And then also, I think another thing which I'm not an expert in, um, I don't know if you have a view of that, but of course, a lot of people were have also been sold protection in form in, in the form of long volatility strategies. Yeah, the problem is they haven't really protected anything mm. this time around. Um, and actually the risk of the portfolio so far, though I think it's going to come in the equity space, but the risk of the portfolio has been in the bond space. Uh, and, and so there's been no protection. In fact, I think most long volatility funds are probably down for the year, uh, you know, while trend followers have, have delivered stellar returns, right? So it'll be interesting to watch and, and see the um, uh, how this evolves. Of course, the fear is that we can see a big inflow uh, in the trend-following space from some of these investors at the wrong time and for the wrong reasons, simply just doing it to be able to tick the box saying, yeah, we do have an allocation here, but not fully embracing it, not fully understanding it. And the first time trend-following is going to have one of those 15-month or 24-month period where nothing happens and there's a few drawdowns, they're going to be out the door, just like it happened in 2010, 11, 12, um, that's the risk that I see. Yeah, no, for um, sure. But hopefully, yeah. I, and I mean, yeah, I, I was just going to say, hopefully, further education, um, as we try to do, as other people try to do, um, will mitigate that that reaction uh, from investors. And because what we want to get to, uh, frankly, is we want to get to a point where people just focuses on this as a core allocation. Don't try to time what we do. We can't do it ourselves, and people should know there's so much dynamic stuff going on inside a trend-following portfolio in terms of increasing positions, decreasing positions. Okay, I understand that there are some of our friends uh, who maybe do that to a lesser degree and only do it when they have new positions on. That's fine. Um, That's another debate. Um, But generally speaking, it's a strategy that adopts with, uh, sorry, adapts with the the market conditions. And therefore, um, we're going to be making all those adjustments and people don't have to try and and time their entries and the exits and all of that, they just need to keep it as a core allocation. No, absolutely, and, and I think that's. Uh, I think you're you're right that there will inevitably be performance chasers come in, and right, you know that's what we've seen in the past. But um, you know, as you say, it's about education. It's about understanding it. You know, because basically, what what does trend following do when you combine it with other elements in the portfolio? It basically acts as a dynamic allocator within the portfolio it increases the allocation to 
risk assets when they're in an uptrend. It right. reduces it, it gets you out, it gets short those assets, brings down your overall risk exposure in a downtrend. So it's a, it's a, it's acting as a as a dynamic asset allocator for you. Um, so that's why you don't have to try and tinker with, with asset allocation by, by adding it to, to a multi-asset portfolio. So it's just, uh, I think, I think uh, there has been good success in that message uh, infiltrating you know the public pension place uh, space in the US but definitely in certain segments it, it it's it's an underappreciated message um that I'm sure it's a topic we'll come back to again I'm sure <laughs> absolutely um before we jump to uh, a completely different topic I think could, that also could be fun to hear your thoughts on um you had a couple of other guests on this series uh, in recent weeks one of them uh, very enjoyable conversation between you and Hugo at Rothschilds I thought that was yeah uh, also another really uh, fun and interesting uh, conversation and I think he was very generous in terms of sharing some of their own weaknesses frankly sure. when it comes to making decisions and all of that so what was your kind of takeaways from uh, from your conversation with Hugo. Yeah, no, very interesting and as you say very very humble um in terms yeah. of their, you know, um, recognizing the difficulty of of doing all of this asset allocation manager selection portfolio management. <clears throat> so, um you know, they definitely not trying to say that they had all of the answers, but there was a few things that really stood out, you know, again Hugo talked about how People will come in showing a strategy to be a high sharp strategy and 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 thinking that this will really sway the uh, investment team at Rothschild when in actual fact they think if they see a high sharp strategy that that's a warning bell for a strategy that's probably unsustainable and probably has some kind of short volatility characteristic which again absolutely true and it's something that uh, as an allocator we would always be you know screening strategies for you know, is are there short vol characteristics? And obviously, you can generate a great sharp at times. You know, basically, um, you know, picking up the nickels in front of the steamroller until you eventually get the big blow up. So, um, that 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 was refreshing to hear that perspective. You had some great, great um, um, metaphors as well. The idea of you know, you can be uh, invested in. You have many different. Uh, cabins but they can all be on the same ship the idea of 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 you know you can seemingly look diversified in your portfolio i think he had the the, the uh, experience of being back at deutsche bank and on their wealth management global asset allocation committee going into the financial crisis and it looked like their portfolio was really diversified you had equities and hedge funds and credit and um real estate and all of these things so you say oh, this is a very um diversified portfolio but of course they all were dominated by by equity risk um so when the when the crisis came the portfolio wasn't as uh, as diversified so it's a good analogy that you know that too many cabins on the same ship but you need to have different ships that are actually going in different directions at different times to be truly truly robust and and diversified so i thought that was an interesting one um Rothschild are interesting in that they they're actually the one they're stock pickers as as well as allocators um, and they're, they're kind of believers in, in value investing at the same time they're believers in trend following. So you might say, how do you marry all of that? But again, it's it's about having um, a belief in disciplines that they feel work over the long term and having the conviction to, to allocate to them. So I thought that was very interesting as well. Um, and, yeah. and if I can just add to that, and actually, and this is what I find refreshing in, in, in a sense, and that is, being willing to accept the evidence, right? Yes. And not thinking that I know better or we know better because 
as as you and I both know, there has never been a white paper suggesting or written suggesting that an allocation to trend following in a portfolio of stocks and bonds would do any harm, right? Yeah. I mean, all the evidence points in one direction, higher returns, lower drawdowns, and lower volatility. Yet, that kind of evidence is still not universally accepted, of course. Yes. And I think that that's what, what Hugo brings to it and, and his team is that they fully accept that evidence and they're not going to spend time coming up with excuses yes. why that's not the case. Yeah. No, definitely um, very much a focus on, you know, appraising their decisions over time, I thought as well, was really interesting. He talked about how, you know, when they make a, a big decision, they'll write down their thought process at that point in time because, you know, if you decide to <clears throat> buy a stock or whatever, then and the stock goes up in value, you, you kind of naturally forget all of those arguments that you had in your mind as to why it mightn't be such a good idea, that you think, oh, well, I kind of knew that was going to be a winner. But actually, if, if, if you have the discipline of writing it all down, documenting, your thought process, then you can go back and say, well, actually, it was kind of a fine, fine, bal finely balanced decision. There were pros, there were cons. Overall, we decided to go with it. Um, so it's a good reminder of how difficult all of these decisions are at the point in time. And also, you know, they, they talked about being prepared and basically having a, a game plan and not trying to, you know, just react to everything that they know in advance. If you get a significant sell-off in certain markets, that this is how they are likely to to, to react. So. I thought, and actually writing that game plan yeah. down, meaning that they would write in advance what they're going to do in order because they knew that once the time came yes. and and whatever they wanted to buy was tanking, that they wouldn't do it unless they had kind of pre-committed to doing yeah. it. Um, again, very, very much common sense, um, but very few people, uh, I imagine, does it. When he mentioned that, when I listened to the conversation, he mentioned that about writing things down, having a plan. I mean... It is so much exactly what we talk about in the trend-following world, right? That one of the strengths of what we do is always having a plan, always knowing what we're going to be doing, regardless of whether um, you have a massive crisis suddenly um, showing up. You know exactly what you're going to do. There's, there is no panic. There is no doubt. Um, and so actually I thought that, wow, that's amazing because this is an argument we've been making for decades that there's a, there's a, an advantage of being quote-unquote prepared um but here are people who are actually doing it by writing down what they're likely go, what they're going to do under certain circumstances because they know they're going to be too weak as humans um to do it otherwise yeah no absolutely and um another point that was very interesting is you know the, what really struck me is that you know, he talked about the, the downside of committees and having too many people right. on the committees yeah. and, you know, that, that another, another refreshing thought. One. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, what you can often get with an investment committee is, you know, stocks are in a downturn. It seems, oh, let's do the prudent thing and reduce our risk here because it's just, there's too much uncertainty out there. And that can be a seemingly sensible thing to do, but actually it's not driven by any investment insight. The investment insight is, probably that that could be the time to be increasing your risk you know so it's that the, the people who are very good at, at at doing this have an you know have an insight the insight might be okay you hold on correlated strategies or you the, you volatility adjust and then they have the discipline to apply that and consistently apply that approach um and that that was another big takeaway that i took from the uh, ted sides uh, conversation as well obviously he's interviewed 
tens and hundreds of of allocators and and you know what 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 distinguishes the the, the really top investors his perspective was again you know that combination of insight and and discipline that they had an insight as to how markets operate and how you can make money and the discipline then to you know carry through on that strategy consistently over the long term um, so there's lots of ways there can be many different insights many different ways to run portfolios but there has to be one it has to be something that works and then you have to apply it systematically and rigorously over time so again that's a, that's a theme that's coming up all the time in, in, in our conversations I want to shift gear uh, before we uh, close uh, down for for today, um, and, um, and and I want to bring it back. and And I, I have an idea, I have a feeling that you might have listened to the conversation. It's the one um, two weeks ago with Tim Pickering, um, right. and because that was very much commodity focused, uh, so super interesting to have Tim back on the, on on the podcast after uh, a number of years. Um, obviously the commodity space have become incredibly interesting again, um, but also recognizing the fact that uh, when Tim and I spoke uh, in December of 2014, I mean, pretty much commodities went into a bear market that lasted five, six years. Um, so which ties, which brings me into um, a paper that um, TransTrend put out this week um, and I have to be completely honest and say here that um, not everything that Harold writes, I'm 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 not sure always I understand fully what he means. So uh, so I could be wrong here. Um, but my feeling was when I read it that um, that they were questioning, which I think is fair, and I probably would do as well questioning this uh, idea about getting exposure to commodities either via a long-only approach, like an index, um, that Tim's firm does a lot of, not exclusively, but they do uh, a, a lot of that. And, and and of course, there's been other commodity index uh, providers. Um, compared to having uh, exposure to commodities from a long-short perspective, like trend followers do, I don't know if you have thoughts on that uh, as such. I know you didn't have time to really uh, read the article that they put out, and but I don't think you need to. But mm. again, when we when we go into this, um, what what would I worry about that's happening right now in terms of uh, decisions being made in in boardrooms around the world, in pension funds and other institutions, is that there could be a sudden rush and say, oh, we need a commodity index so we can tick the box and sure. we can show up. We have a yeah. 5% allocation. So we're gonna just going to rush in it to it and it's going to be long only. And then we're going to another bear market for commodities potentially. Who knows? So how do you – have you ever done any work uh, in this area or do you have any opinions yeah. about it? <clears throat> No, I think you're right. I have looked at this before, and um, I, it's just interesting. I was looking at some some asset allocation plans and looking doing some work on this recently. And you know, it's interesting how if you said to somebody now, "Well, should we have an allocation to commodities?" I, I don't think anybody would say, "Oh no, we must right. not have commodities." Why would you have commodities? But if you were to do that five years ago and you said, "Well, should we have?" 10% commodity. Well, like commodities have fallen for the last 10 years. Why would you have commodities? So it is interesting how just in, in the space of what, two, three, four years, whatever it is, you know, everybody's perception, I think, would have changed around that. And, you know, if you went back to 2010 or eight, you know, and you looked at 
most people's asset allocation plans. They probably did include commodities then, and then they were out, and now they're back in. And that just reflects the fact that these markets tend to be very cyclical. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually what, you know, I've done some work in this before, and what, what, what you find in, in an inflationary environment, and, you know, long-only commodities will do better than managed futures or trend-following. Um, but obviously, in, in, in a non-inflationary environment, they will do a lot worse. So... Um, over the full cycle, what you get obviously with trend following in managed futures is the, the ability to manage a risk that you can participate on the way up. But if if you get a change in the cycle and, you know, who knows how long the, this super cycle will, if it's a super cycle or how long this cycle will last, um, you're, you're basically getting a more managed uh, way of accessing commodities by, by being allocated to trend following in managed futures. And it's interesting because if you went back a few years, most people allocated to trend following on the crisis risk offset idea purely as something that can do well in times of equity stress. But obviously, you know, we're talking about the stock chain trend being up 25% this year. Okay, equities are down, but not dramatically. We're not in the midst of an equity bear market. We're in the midst of a bond bear market and we're in the midst of an inflationary surge. So I think what my takeaway is, yes, if you had absolute conviction that commodities were, were moving higher for the next 10 years and you had two choices, it was long commodities or trend following, yes, maybe commodities would do better, but in the absence of that complete conviction, trend following is a way of getting exposure should we have that multi-year uh, rally in commodities. But if we don't, and it turns out to be not the case, that you will get a managed exposure and you can participate, obviously, you know, if, if, if it ends up being a, maybe, okay, 2008, it's maybe too dramatic to say that, but if we have a scenario where, the first part of the year is an inflationary surge, but the second half of the year is a recession, which a lot of people are forecasting, uh, and, I, and commodities turned down, then obviously trend following will be able to adapt to that. So I think from a risk-reward perspective, um, you know, that, that's that, that's why trend following is, is, is perhaps a more attractive way of accessing commodities. And there's another thing um, that's interesting about this is that usually people will get the idea of, of, of getting more exposure to commodities when they see the inflation numbers go up. But as you and I spoke about before we pressed record today, actually, when you see the inflation, commodities have actually already gone up because they're yes. typically the ones causing the inflation. So they have to they've moved up for months by the time we they show up in 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 the CPI numbers and so on and so forth. Plus, those numbers are you know obviously manipulated in many ways anyway. So so um, it, it's kind of a little bit of a silly thing um, to say, oh, I'm going to hedge against the inflation we see now by getting commodity exposure. Well, you probably should have thought of that before you even saw any inflation in the numbers. Um, so I think that is a that is a, uh, a no, challenge. Sure. Yeah. Um, we, we've, we've already had the, comp- yeah. the, the inflation and, in, and, in the commodity and, features. And the difference being, um, Alan, between having a core allocation to commodities in your portfolio and also a long-only uh, commodities allocation, and having a core allocation to trend following, is also because we have all these roll yields, et cetera, et cetera, that just depletes the 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 um, performance of long-only uh, commodity indices. A lot of them were down 60-70%, I think, from memory, uh, before they turned uh, in, in 2020 from their recent high. And we already know how difficult it is to keep investors uh, interested if you're down 20%. Yes. Uh, so I can't imagine yeah. how uh, impossible really it is to keep them invested if you're... Uh, plus the fact you have to make up so much money. We're going back to the compound effect of, of, of making an investment. If you're down 60%, 
even if commodities looks great, they're up 50% in the last 12 months. Well, I mean, you're not even back to break even <laughs> at that time. So, I, you know, I don't want to sound too negative on, on long-only commodities indices and so on and so forth. Um, I do think they can play a role. Um, but I really like the the actively managed side of, of, of commodity exposure that you get through trend following um, a lot more anyways. Another thing that I thought has been quite interesting uh, as well is that um, one of the themes that uh, our next guest uh, on the Global Macro Series, Peter Sion, has been talking about is this that we're entering a world of deglobalization. You and I talked, uh, you know, touched on this when we talked about, um, you know, the Bread and Woods 3 and all of that stuff. And, and one of his points um, really is that in a deglobalizing world, anything that's worked in the last 30, 40 years, uh, this is going to be like playing the film in reverse. So anything that's worked right. in the last 30, 40 years probably won't work well uh, going forward. And of course, if we think about it from an investment point of view, that could easily mean things like risk parity, private equity, just to name a few. Um Whilst on the other side, which we, I think, have been uh, openly admitting that the last 20 years have not been as good as uh, for trend followers uh, as the 70s, the 80s and the 90s. So maybe these divergent strategies, there's another argument for why a deglobalizing world will be much more conducive to trend following than the globalizing world that we've been in. And especially in the last 20 years, which then became kind of this massively carry focused uh, world with stable uh, central bank policies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, another thing, I don't know if you have any views on that, just because it's happening, I think, tomorrow. Uh, we have a French election. Um, yeah. Another thing that no, could... No, yeah, no no insights, on, particular insights on the, on the French election. No. But, um, but I do agree with you on, on the deglobalization. And I think another thing that is interesting there that, that isn't unknown, we've seen this huge growth of the private markets and you know private debt private credit um and a lot of people have seen this as the as the substitute from for government bonds but you know I, one thing i'm wondering about and i haven't uh, researched this enough yet to have any clear view but it is it is a concern you know obviously in a, in a typical downturn you know those credit losses bankruptcies etc the, the losses will accrue in the banking sector and you could say well that's systemic but at the same time it's easy to identify who these people are and you can bail them out but in the next downturn you know who will be assuming the losses from 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 um, corporate defaults uh, bankruptcies etc and is that uh, is is the systemic risk different uh, potentially going forward so i think there's been this huge flood of money into the privates um, ref, you know, reflecting the low rate environment, and as you say, which is a byproduct of globalization. You know, looking ahead, how will that play out in the next downturn? I don't know, but I'm very, very interested to, to to see how that plays out. And the beauty is, as trend followers, we don't need to know. Um, so that's uh, you know, let's leave it with that. That's a good way, I guess, on on ending our our little trend following. Um, talk today. Uh, you've already done part of my work here, uh, Alan, because you already talked about year-to-date performances, but just because it's part mm. of my usual <laughs> spiel, um, Beta 50 Index is up 5% in April so far, up 14.54% uh, year-to-date as of Thursday. Uh, Sockgen CT Index up 55 up 18.71% so far this year. Sockgen Trend Index up 6.66%, um, up 25.73%. 
as of Thursday, and then the Sokjian Short-Term Traders Index up 2.2%, up 7.84% so far this year. Um, MSCI World Index down 5.59% in April so far, down 10.8% uh, uh, year-to-date. And the World Government Bond Index down another almost 3% this month. I don't even have the year-to-day number, but it's not looking pretty. I think it is the worst start to any year really in the fixed income um, sector so um, so there we are um, we're going to wrap up uh, this conversation of course we hope that you enjoyed it um, if you did please share uh, these episodes and please rate and review them in Spotify and in iTunes next week I'm going to be joined by Rob who's back after his extended Easter break I have to say as always uh, it's going to be a fun conversation I'm sure there's a few topics he wants to comment on that we've uh, been speaking about uh, in the last few weeks you can email the questions that you might have uh, for Rob, uh, info at toptradersonplug.com, and we'll do our best to bring them up. In the meantime, I would just need to finish and say bye uh, from Alan and me. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. And um, in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.